Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. Upon this rock I will build my church. Remember that? We can trust that. I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail. But we see a lot of things in the church to be concerned about, don't we? From the very beginning, we begin to see, as we read history, concerns with the church. Paul wrote to some of his churches, and he had to spend a considerable amount of time, sometimes, addressing problems that they had. Paul died having planted a few missions around the Mediterranean there, and seeing none of them really uh, flourishing. Christianity was in its infancy. A lot of them were embroiled in internal conflict and problems. And so he was seeing the very seedlings of the church. He didn't see the strength and the numbers of the church today, but he gave himself, Paul did, and didn't see a lot of the feedback for his, for his efforts. I wonder how many times Paul must have reflected back on Jesus establishing the church and the promise that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And we see through the history of the church times that we wonder what has happened to the church. We see what we call the Dark Ages which was appropriately named. It just didn't seem like spiritually anything was happening. And where was the church? We saw the church try to spread the gospel by, uh, by the sword. St. Augustine, that we are all acquainted with the name, was one that recommended in the early centuries that, that we, ought to, we ought to force Christianity upon people like the Crusades. Of course, that wasn't a good idea. So we've had, we've had our problems through the century with the church, haven't we? We saw the church become so elite that they decided the common man could not have a Bible. Just the upper echelon people would have a Bible, and they would read it, and they would dispense what they thought people needed. But you have a Bible, so that wasn't such a good idea, was it? And my subject matter today for the sermon is this. What is the biggest threat to Christianity? But I want to take you to Revelation chapter 3 and read the letter that was written to the church of Laodicea. This is the seventh church in Revelation. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful, and the true witness, and the ruler of God's creation. Unmistakably, Jesus Christ. 
giving this message. I know your deeds, and you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness. And salve to put on your eyes so you can see and those whom I love I rebuke and discipline so be earnest and repent. Now I've been pastoring since 1980. I've had a a lot of experiences as a pastor. I've received my fair share of hate mail. I want to balance that. I've got a drawer full of nice mail. I have to. So the file doesn't get imbalanced. But I've got, and I save them. I've told you this before. I save my hate mail. That's priceless stuff. Never in all of my ministry have I gotten a letter like this. And from God, nonetheless. Can you imagine? Oh, a letter from Jesus. Let's see what it says. It says, you're poor, miserable, blind, naked, and wretched. I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. How shocking that the communication they get from God is this bold and this upsetting. This passage about the Laodicean church is a prime example of what a church should not be. Now, out of all the seven churches there, the Laodicean church is the only church that gets a complete F on its report. The church of Philadelphia is the only one that gets a complete A. The rest of them have some good things and some bad things. The church of Ephesus, that was Timothy's church. When you read the book of Ephesians, they get an A. There's nothing negative in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. But when you read the letter to the Ephesian church a few years later, they've got some problems. You've left your first love. So there was some good. There were some things that needed to be fixed. The Philadelphia church passed with flying colors. The Laodicean church, nothing was redeemable. You're a mess. And the place that the Laodicean church was located, the city, there's an interesting play off of the condition and the situation and the characteristics of the city and how Jesus applied that in his message to the church. He just used that as kind of a backdrop, almost to show the irony. So, let me deal first of all with the statement, the biggest threat to Christianity is not. It's not what one might think or what we maybe act like sometimes. First of all, the 
biggest threat to Christianity is not competition. And I might suggest things like entertainment, recreation. Churches have struggled with big events encroaching on their time. Have you noticed that? Many years ago, uh, churches began to deal with Super Bowl Sunday when the recorders first came out, the video recorders, by promising if you'll stay in church, if you'll come to church in the evening service, whenever it was going to conflict, we promise you we'll tape the game, then we'll go back and watch it afterwards. They were trying to deal with the competition of worldly activities, stealing their congregation. And, of course, that has evolved. Uh, some churches now just broadcast the, uh, the Super Bowl live, and they have a, a, a party, bring the chips and stuff, and, and they're trying to deal with the conflict of time trying to get people to quit deserting their church for other things. That's competition. We're trying to figure out how do we deal with the competition to the church? Or just recreation that's available. Not only events that are going on, but, but recreation. Now, Ann and I uh, had the joy of pastoring in Alabama for seven years. There really is a cultural change from where you live and the South. There really is. We loved being in the South, but we were awkward there because we didn't understand the way they communicated all the time. And so we we made our fair share of mistakes. But what a charming place it was in the South. It really, really was. And the little town that we lived in The county was dry. I don't mean they didn't get rain. You know what I mean? We're talking the alcohol issue, right? The county was dry. And so anywhere in that county you went, you couldn't buy liquor. You couldn't buy it in the grocery stores. It wouldn't be served in the restaurants. The county was dry. The county eventually went wet. And the town I lived in stayed dry. So this little oasis right in the middle of a wet county, we're still dry. Bootlegging went on all the time. People were sneaking their booze in and selling it. But we were dry. It was a unique place to live. Wednesday afternoon, downtown Hartzell rolled in the sidewalks and closed the stores. Do you know why? Wednesday night church. Downtown closed down because they had a habit going back who knows how long that you've got to have time to get home and have a meal with your family so you can go to church at night. That's culture shock. But it was lovely. And they didn't schedule Little League games on church night. Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday were all available. You don't do that on Wednesday. It's church night. They didn't schedule soccer games and Little League on Sunday. It's church day. They were sensitive to that. So we enjoyed being in that atmosphere. There was no competition for the church. The church dominated. Even the schools and people and the civic groups, 
they were sensitive to how they built their calendar because they didn't want to interfere with the church's calendar. Now, you don't see that today and where we live. People run all over the church's calendar. It makes no difference. If they want to hold a big event here in the Quad Cities and do it on Sunday morning, they don't care. How many of you remember the movie uh, Chariots of Fire? Did you see it? It was a, an inspiring movie. Eric Liddell was the son of missionaries and a devout Christian and a world-class runner. And his big event was the 100-yard dash. And he goes to the, to the Olympics, 1924 Summer Olympics, and they have a qualifying heat on Sunday. And because of his religious convictions and his willingness desire to honor God and not do anything on what he called his Christian Sabbath, he refused to participate in the qualifying heat. Therefore, he could not run the race the following day because he didn't qualify. And the 100-yard dash was his best event. The 100-meter, uh, I'm sorry. I've got to make sure this is not Americanized. The 400-meter was not his best. As a matter of fact, the very best time that he had ever logged was nowhere even close to being Olympic competitive. It was mediocre. But that's what he chose to do. And at the 400-meter race, he approaches the starting blocks, and somebody slips a piece of paper into his hand, and he looks at it, and it says, quote, Those who honor me, I will honor, 1 Samuel 2.30. And Liddell went on to not only win the 400-meter race, but he broke the world record in doing so. He could never do that before. But he honored God, and God honored him. However, having said all of that, we're dealing with a different dynamic today. What's the biggest enemy of the church? Is, it, is, is competition really our enemy? And I say, no, it's not, because when it really comes down to it, we can't depend on the county or the city continuing to, to adopt laws that honors the space, the time, and the calendar for the church. We can't depend on that. And when we're forced to deal with, what do we do now? The schools don't care about our calendar. The sports don't care about our calendar. The civic groups don't care about our calendar. Is the church going to go under? No, because really what it's going to come down to is people are going to have to learn to be willing to come to church for more than just convenience. It really comes down to people are going to have to want to serve God because it honors Him. And so that, really, I discount the competition as being the biggest enemy of the church. It's an inconvenience. But those who want to honor God are going to honor God regardless, just like the runner did. If you're determined to, nothing's going to stop you. Well, is the biggest enemy of the church uh, competing religions? And say, no, I don't believe so. Today, the statistics show that Christianity is about 2.3 billion people in the world. Islam is 1.5 billion. And Hinduism is around a billion people, making up most of the religion, the population of the religion in the world. And the rest are made up of smaller religions put together. 
But does that make Christianity 2.2 billion larger than anybody else? Is, is that something we should be uh, taking confidence and comfort in? No, because when Christianity began, they were not the major religion in the world. We don't have to maintain the number one status. Other religions are gaining. As a matter of fact, one of the fastest growing statistics in trying to discover uh, the, the demographics of religion is uh, the people who have no uh, religious affiliation whatsoever. That's growing at a greater rate than most any other category. The nothings. Not attached to anything. Is that a threat to Christianity? No, because we don't depend on, on numbers. And even when the church was young, and you could number 120 people in the upper room, and don't know how many others might have been scattered about that somehow, some way were, were believers, but were not gathered there. But it was a very small number of people in the early church. And numbers didn't mean anything, because they had a message. So I would say it's not competition of entertainment. It's not competition of religion. It's, it's not competition of, of any of these other events that are going on. The church can overcome those things. It's not our biggest enemy. We do battle those sometimes, but it doesn't qualify as the big one. It's not persecution. Because the church endured persecution. Christians endured persecution. From the very beginning, Stephen was stoned. And Nero put out a, a, a severe program of persecution against Christians in Rome. And the great persecution of the church came even in the years following that, until in the Edict of Milan, uh, Constantine determined that they would no longer be allowed to persecute Christians, but Christianity would become the official religion of the Roman Empire. But up until that time, they were, they were going through uh, unthinkable persecution. There was about 130 years of persecution, severe persecution, and about 120 years of calm and peace, and they were on and off and on and off and on and off. But for about 300 and some plus years, the, the church knew what persecution was. They kept going into persecution and maybe having some rest and then again, but they knew. Then after, after the Edict of Milan uh, and Constantinople uh, pulling back the attack against the church, now the church is unencumbered. They're free. They don't have to be persecuted anymore. And the church begins to go flat. The church grew under persecution. The church historically has always grown under persecution. So is persecution our enemy? Not at all. It's, it's job security. Is the encroaching darkness of the world, and we see the world getting more and more wicked, and the prophecies of the Bible said, perilous times shall come. Is that the biggest enemy of the church? No. The darker the world gets, the more wicked people are, the more they need the church. So it's not like darkness is going to overcome the light and put our light out. And we're going to sit down someday. If they just hadn't have been so wicked, the church would have done all right. This is where we flourish. This is where we shine. This is where we are called to be a light in darkness. If there is no darkness, we don't have any purpose. A light in darkness, a salt to, to a flavorless world. It's what we're all about. 
So what is the biggest threat? And I could go on with uh, maybe suggesting some other things that we worry and stew and fret about from time to time. But I want to get down to what I think the biggest threat to Christianity is. And it simply is this. You can say it any way you want to. A dysfunctional church is the biggest threat to Christianity. Like Pogo said in his famous uh, comic strip years ago, we have met the enemy and he is us. We are our own worst enemy. The condition, the state of the church. It's not the outside forces, it's the corruption inside. And in this famous passage of Matthew 16, where Jesus has this interchange with Peter, Jesus says, I'm going to try and help you understand how this message came across to the Greek culture, okay? Jesus said, and upon this rock, I will build my ecclesia. He used a word that was already very familiar to the Greek culture. Now, just bear with me for a minute. The Greeks had government, and they knew what government was, and they had a word for government. We have government, and we understand that concept. So whenever we translate the Greek word for government, we translate it into something that is something we understand. They understood it, we understood it. They had houses, so they had a Greek word for a house. We have houses, we understand that. And the list could go on and on. You, you get the idea. But the Greeks had no churches. A church did not exist. So when we say church, you have all kinds of associations with church, don't you? Depending on what context you're thinking church. You might think church as the building. You might think church just as this congregation. You might think church as the entire world of believers. There's a different, number of different ways we think of it. But the Greeks didn't have a church. So Jesus didn't use the word that we use, church, when he said, upon this rock, I'm going to build my ecclesia. Now, what was an ecclesia? In the Greek culture, it was a special called-out gathering of people assembled for a specific purpose. In the government, the ecclesia was in... See, this was in the Greek culture, it was a democracy. Now, how many of you know that we in the United States are not a democracy? A republic. We're not a democracy. In the democracy... Every person has a voice, and they represent themselves. And the ecclesia was the gathering of everybody that was a male over the age of 18 who had served two years in the military, and they had a right to express their opinions. So they gathered together, and they, they uh, governed with this gathering of everybody. They appointed officials. They made laws. It, 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 was, it was the democracy where the single person had a, a voice and a vote. And that's the way they did it. It's like if there was no representation in the United States and we all just gathered once a year to Washington to everybody hammer out what we're going to do next. Well, we couldn't do a worse job. <clears throat> but we don't do it like that. So the Ecclesia was that special call-down group. And the Greeks understood that. The Ecclesia could also be any, uh, what we might call an ad hoc 
gathering. Just, just right on the spot. Let's put some people together. Let's call them out. And let's, let's convene. Let's caucus about this. Uh, it could be a, a gathering for any cause, any purpose that they were specially called for. Not just governmental work. It'd be a little ecclesia. And Jesus stood up in this Greek culture. And them understanding ecclesia is a special group called together for a number of things. He says, upon this rock, I'm going to build my own ecclesia. And they are puzzled saying, what's your group going to do? We understand what the governmental ecclesia does. We want to understand what the private little ecclesias do, calling people together. You're going to start an ecclesia. You're going to get your own little group together. Now, as time went on, and the body of believers gathered together and began to build buildings and have local congregations, and we called it a church, we went back and, after the fact, applied that to what Jesus said. This must be what he was saying, because this is what it turned into. So that's the word that we gave to it. But there were earlier translators of the Bible, King James uh, Uh, translators wanted to use the word church. They thought that was appropriate. But there were other translators who translated that, upon this rock I will build my assembly. And that's what he was saying. They didn't understand the concept of church. Even in uh, uh, in the Old Testament, when God was giving direction for the children of Israel, the word in the, in the King James Version says, the whole congregation of Israel must keep the Passover. And when that Hebrew was translated into Greek, and it became the, what they called the Septuagint, the translation of the Old Testament into Greek, so they could read that in their language, they chose the word ecclesia for congregation. So there's ecclesia in the Old Testament through the translation. So the very first time the Ecclesia is ever used in the Bible. In the New Testament, that is. The very first time, as the New Testament is written in Greek, that anyone spoke that word and and it was recorded, is when Jesus stood and made this startling announcement, upon this rock, I'm going to build my ecclesia. Oh, he's going to get his own thing going here. Going to get his own assembly of people. And nobody at that time when he said that understood buildings and pews and local congregations. And uh, they did not, nothing like that even entered into their mind. What are these people going to get together and do? But Jesus said, I'm going to build it. Upon this rock, I'll build my church. I'm going to build my special called assembly. He said, I'm going to build it. That means they being specially called out by him, they would conduct the business he would appoint to them. And that's what we need to do. He would build this gathering of people. He would build him into a force that by his own description and own admission, he said, I'll build it, and it will be a gathering of people that the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against it. Now, that's lofty goals. Going to build something that is going to prevail over the powers of hell. That's what we are supposed to be. We're supposed to be a gathering that can dominate over the powers of hell. 
It's right in the original blueprint. He said, I'll build it, and they will be powerful, more powerful than all the wicked forces. But are we? Is Westside? Are all the collective churches of the Quad Cities? Is the worldwide church more powerful than the powers of darkness? We're supposed to be. Are we? The church at Laodicea wasn't. They were a mess. And here they were, this church of Laodicea, in a city that is well known for certain things. One of them is their textile industry. One of them is their wealth. And one of them is a negative. They were well known for having bad water. And because they had great wealth and great textile but bad water, they were able to build an aqueduct and pump some water in or flow some water in from some six miles away. And they was bringing it from hot springs. And by the time the water gets from the hot springs six miles down, it's no longer hot water. It's just tepid water. They didn't have good water they could drill for, so when you pull it up out of the well and drink it, it's a nice, cold, refreshing glass of water. They didn't have that. Their water was bad. And they didn't have the nice hot spring water like they had in the neighboring city where you could go and they felt it was therapeutic. They could sit in the hot springs and how beautiful that was. They just pumped it in and it ended up being just water. Tepid, lukewarm water. And it was borrowed at that. Brought in. So they weren't known for having that. So with the richness, the wealth of the city and the textile industry, and the uh, water that is not noteworthy, Jesus now speaks to the church and uses the situation of their city to tie that into the condition of the church. And what Jesus says is basically, you live in a city that is famous for its textile industry, the fine clothing that comes out of your city. But you, as a church, living right in the middle of being physically clothed, you're naked, you are vulgar before God. You, a church, sitting in the midst of all this wealth in this city, you, as a church, by contrast, are poor. You're broke. You're bankrupt. You, as a church, sitting in this city, that has this tepid water. He said, I would rather that your water was hot so somebody could enjoy it with the hot springs. Or your water's cold so somebody could enjoy a good cold drink, but you're just tepid like your city's water. So in some cases, he was equating them to the condition of the city. In other cases, he was contrasting them. But nevertheless, he was using those subject matter in the city that they were very familiar with to nail them for their pitiful condition. And there was one other thing that Laodicea was famous for, 
and they had come across some recipe for ISAV. And it was being exported around the world. Everybody wanted Laodicea's ISAV. And Jesus said, you need some ISAV. All the things that they thought they had was really of no spiritual benefit to them. They were destitute. What a mess this church was. The lukewarm water symbolizes indifference and compromise. Their boasting of being rich and having need of nothing spoke of their fatal sense and attitude of independence. And Jesus' analysis pierced to the core of the problem. He said, you're living in a fantasy. You see yourself in a false light. You think you're rich. You think you're important. But I see your spiritual condition. And the truth is, you are nothing but wretched, poor, miserable, blind, and naked. And they did not know it. Your city's famous for its clothing, but you have no clothing. And in this letter to the church, Jesus said, there are three areas you need to make major mends, major corrections, because you're on totally the wrong path. These are the three things I want you to focus on today. The first thing that Jesus suggested is, your problem with your church is you have lost your standard. And in every one of these, I want the Holy Spirit to make the application to us where it's appropriate, as individuals. Let the question be, have I lost my standard? Let the question be, has our church lost their standard? Has the church worldwide lost its standard? Has the American church lost its standard? In 1933, the United States was in the throes of the Great Depression. FDR was determined to turn this thing around. The stock market had fallen. People lost their jobs. People were destitute. So FDR says, I'm going to fix this. What we need to do is there's not enough money to go around, and so I'm going to lift the gold standard. We will no longer have a monetary system based on the amount of gold that we hold. For you see, when we were on a gold standard, the theory was this, that these paper notes that you carried around were backed by gold. You could go and exchange it. The theory is you could exchange it, $20.67 worth of your money could buy an ounce of gold. Anytime you needed to do that, you could give your money to a, a merchant, and the merchant would say, that's just a piece of paper, I don't want it. And you say, no, 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 wait a minute. You don't like the paper money? Go exchange it for an ounce of gold. It's good. So they said, very well. Well, we begin to honor that system. FDR said, we don't want to do that anymore. We, we need more money. So he took us off of the gold standard and began to print money. And then he put money in everybody's hands. And now it's a fiat system, just based on honor system. I will take your money because I believe that the next person will take it from me. 
but it's worth absolutely nothing. There is no value to your money except somebody honors it in exchange for what you want to purchase. That's the end of it. Is that scary? How many of you have heard of bitcoins? Have anybody heard of bitcoins? I know some of our computer geeks have heard of bitcoins. It's a new currency that is virtual. You don't hold it in your hand. And you can buy bitcoins and then use those bitcoins as an electronic exchange. And there are more and more companies, hotels, and, and people around the world that are accepting bitcoins because you converted your money into bitcoins. And then whenever you want to pay for your hotel room or whoever accepts this, you will arrange a transaction where they get your bitcoins. There's no money there. You can't find it. You can't feel it. It's not there. But everybody's honoring this because somewhere along the line, somebody took their paper money that was worthless to begin with and bought it. And people are investing in bitcoins because it's hot right now because people who bought bitcoins when they weren't worth very much, they're just skyrocketing in value. I do not recommend you go and buy bitcoins because there's nothing there. It's all air. And the minute that somebody decides not to accept it anymore, you're stuck with a whole lot of bitcoins you can't even pick up and put in your closet because it's, it's, it doesn't exist. Now, that's, see, that's, that's the monetary system that we're under. Your dollar is only worth whatever you can exchange it for as long as somebody's willing to do that. Now, the reason I've gone into detail about this is I want you to understand the problem that the church at Laodicea had. Jesus said, you're broke. They said, no, we're rich. No, you see, the things you have have no value. No eternal value, no spiritual value. I'm telling you, you're broke. And he said, you need to buy some gold from me. What happened was they got off the standard. They got off heaven's gold standard. They didn't have any because Jesus said you need to get some. They had left their heavenly gold standard a long time ago, and everything they had was absolutely worthless. They got off the standard. And so I ask myself, as we try to apply the lesson that is given to the Laodicea church, what can the modern-day American church learn from this nasty letter they got? Have we abandoned our standard? People are insisting that the principles that are set forth in God's Word are somehow antiquated. They're outdated. They were spoken to another culture in another age. And because we don't live in that culture and we don't live in that age, many of the things of the Bible, they say, do not apply to us. And we're losing our standard. Is the Word of God appropriate for today? Yes, it is. There are things that are culturally sensitive and relevant. And there are things that are timeless. And we have to know the difference between those things. It was culturally acceptable whenever Paul told the people, greet one another with a holy kiss. But we don't understand that and practice that in our culture. Therefore, it would be ridiculous for me to stand up and say, the Bible says, now you people are going to, because we don't understand that 
it, it doesn't work in our culture. Or whenever Paul said uh, that it's not appropriate for women to speak in church, there was a cultural application to that. Yet there are some people that don't understand the, the cultural dimension of that, and to this day they said the Bible says women can't talk in church, and they insist. That's, their, that's one of the, the foundations of their religion. They don't understand. But there are timeless truths in the Bible that people are trying to drop because it's an inconvenience on their lifestyle. Jesus said you need to get your standard back, at least in the American church. I'm not going to talk about the church around the world. There's some places where the church is doing great. The epicenter of Christianity is south of the equator, and they're doing a whole lot better than we are. We're on the downside of this whole revival thing. But in the American church, we're losing our standard. The second thing he says you need to fix is you've lost your virtue. And they need to recover that. He said, buy white clothes to cover your shameful nakedness. Spiritually naked. Thinking themselves to be arrayed in fine garments. Jesus points out the irony and says, you have great clothes in your closet. You have flashy clothes as you wear to church. And spiritually, you are embarrassingly, shamefully naked before God. And you need to buy something and put it on. Now, God desires a holy people. This is not up for debate. The scriptures are clear. Without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. Our debate has been, what is holiness? That's always been the question. The question is not, does God require it? The question is, what is it? The question has never been, or should never have been, does God disapprove of worldliness? The question is, what is worldliness? That's where we grapple. So no matter how old-fashioned that might sound, there, it is still an unmistakable message of Scripture that God desires holiness. It is incumbent upon us to figure out what that is because if God requires it, we better get it. And it's our duty to figure out what it is. What is happening in the decline and the deterioration of the American church today? It's so breathtaking what has happened. Young pastors, and I know I've mentioned this in many sermons, but it just annoys me. Young pastors that are punctuating their sermons with curse words to make themselves sound bold and clever and shocking and relevant. Your pastor is not resorting to that here, I promise you. Churches are resorting to every marketing scheme they can think of to draw people. Now, don't misunderstand me. I understand there's a certain amount of marketing that goes on regardless. But whenever the marketing takes place of the real drawing power of Jesus Christ, the centrality of Jesus, the power of the cross, the power of the Holy Spirit, we've got a problem. And what I find is people who have lost the power of God in their church are now resorting to marketing to make up for it. One of the hottest trends right now in church, whether you've read about it or not, maybe you can get your news right here on Sunday morning. 
One of the hottest trends right now is churches that are jumping on this wagon about free beer on church Sunday morning. I promise you, from New York to Oregon, Washington State, Texas, and on and on, dozens of churches, just a Google search will take you to many, many results showing you that churches now are serving beer on Sunday morning to get the congregation to come. And the irony of this is that I have been preaching this as a joke for the past 15 years, telling people, I know how to grow a church. All you got to do is offer free beer and you'll fill your church up. I just don't want to do it that way. And lo and behold, I wake up and discover somebody must have heard me say that and thought it was a good idea. Beer's the bait. Just something to get people to go to church. I don't know where this is going. The mind boggles when you think about it. I know what draws people in this world. Do I want to do that in the church to get them here? We could have a guest, guest stripper next. I shouldn't have said that because somebody is going to do this. This is a desperate church that resorts to these things just to draw people. They have lost their godly virtue. They are naked before God. It's the compromising church that absolutely refuses to preach on the sins of the Bible because too many people in the congregation are participating. This is the church that refuses to preach on hell because hell is not fashionable anymore and it offends people. This is the church that is trading holy values for political correctness just to stay popular and maybe out of jail. This is the church that has taken off their robes of righteousness and dressed themselves in the rags of vulgarity to be more appealing to the world. This is the church that has lost its sense of modesty and has forgotten how to blush in their moral compromising positions. It's a sick church. That was a Laodicean church, but I see too much of it happening in the American church. Jesus said to the sick church at Laodicea, you're naked. No matter how you're dressed, you are dressed in the attire attire of immorality, you're naked. You need to buy some clothes, you need to get some white raiments, you need some robes of righteousness, you need to cover your nakedness. And no church that has ever lost its sense of decency and virtue, and modesty will ever be that ecclesia that Jesus said, I will build my ecclesia, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The third thing that Jesus said you need to fix is your vision. He said you're blind, and you need to get some eye salve. You understand, Laodicea Church? Your city is famous for its eye salve. It believes in it. The world is clamoring for their eye salve because people want to see. So I am telling you, since you understand that dynamic church of Laodicea, this is what Jesus is more or less saying. I'm enlarging on it. He's saying, therefore, I'm saying I've got some eye salve. And you need it because you've got a vision problem. Now, Paul understood blindness of the world. He said this, if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. 
That's the spiritually ignorant. The God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel. Paul understood the blindness of the world. Paul also recognized the blindness of his own people, and he was grieved by it. He says, regret, in a regretting tone, blindness in part has happened unto Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. But the blindness of the 21st century American church is, for me, the great tragedy. The power of the true gospel is being replaced with a feel-good message of prosperity and positive thinking. I had a man come to me a few years ago, and you know how I preach. I, I I, I don't want to stomp people's toes every Sunday, but when the Bible stomps my toes, I want to stomp somebody else's toes. It's just, but then there's times when we rejoice. We just have a great time in the Lord, and we rejoice in, in his majesty. I, I'm not a one-trick pony. Preach the whole counsel of the word. The power of the Holy Spirit that should be the earmark of the Pentecostal church. We can't just put up a sign and put out literature saying we're Pentecostal. I'm petitioning the people of the church that believe that the Pentecostal church is still relevant today to pray that the power of God invades our church every time we gather. People still need to be believing in the healing of the Lord. People still need to be seeking for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. People still need to be petitioning God through their prayer language when they don't know how to pray. We still need to be doing those things. Do you realize out of all the major religions in the world that the fastest growing segment, and I talked about the, the nothings a while ago, but within the major religions of the world that hands down, unquestionable, the fasting, fastest growing segment of all religions is Pentecostalism around the world. Because around the world they are hungry for the real and the genuine and the power of God. Now I'll tell you, we're going to miss the boat if we don't keep the power flowing at West Side. We used to have a joke down in Alabama when I was working on construction. The electricity would go out and everything down there is power. It's not electricity, it's power. And they'd, they'd come on our working place and ask us, do you have any power? I said, we got all kinds of power. We just don't have electricity. Bugged them to death. I want them to understand. Power doesn't come from the electricity company in town. We've got all kinds of electricity here today. You can see. The question is, do we have the power? And are walk, you walking as a believer in the power, the Pentecostal power of the Holy Spirit? Are you? Are you hesitant to pray for somebody's healing or somebody's deliverance right on the spot? Or do you have to run and find the pastor somewhere like he's got a special line to heaven? No, you've got that. You've got that. Where is, where is the lady? I think you was telling me about being delivered from alcohol. Is that correct? Yes. That was, what a testimony. What a testimony. What, what was that church where you went to that lady pastor? What was that church? Zion Lutheran Church. May I use your testimony? And she walks into the pastor. 
And in very short, it says they prayed. And from that moment on, not one drop of alcohol delivered. God doesn't care what name's on the, on the church. If you believe him and you trust him, God can work a miracle in your life. That Lutheran lady got it. One of the Pentecostal churches are getting it. I mean, it's, it's okay to do what you have to do when you have to do it. But are we re- relying too much on the only thing we have left now is just support groups to get people well? I mean, I know people need some help. I know they need some fellowship. What happened to the power? We need the Pentecostal power in our church. It's being replaced with programs and professionalism, and that's not going to get it. The offense of the cross has been replaced with a popular gospel that's devoid of truth and powerless to change lives. And blindness settling on the 21st century American church. We need the eye salve from heaven. We need a touch of Christ that opens dead eyes and causes the blind to see. We need a vision. The 21st century church has a vision problem. My final point. Jesus said, I counsel you to buy from me. I have clothing, gold. I counsel you to buy from me. That means to fix the problem, there has to be a transaction. That means for there to be a transaction, you're going to have to pay something. This is not Christmas candy that is being thrown out at the annual Christmas parade. This is not cheap. It's not free. It's not easy. This is not worthless trinkets we are dealing in. These are priceless things from heaven that Jesus said, you need to buy it from me. Now, it's really nice, people, for us to be sentimental about revival and to go around most of the day when we think about it or all week long if we think about it and say, God, wouldn't it be nice if we just had revival in our church? Isn't that nice? But God said, if you want something, you're probably going to have to buy it from me. What does that mean? That means it's going to cost you something. You want revival? What? It's going to cost you something. And I know it's difficult to get people to participate in programs, schedules. If I say we're all going to gather here and pray on certain, certain nights, we don't all do that. We just don't. If I say we're all going to fast this week, we don't all do that. But I am begging you in your personal walk that you buy some things from God so you can see the revival, so you can see the power, so you can see the holiness, so you can see these things coming to your church and into your life so we can be the ecclesia that Jesus said he was going to build and not be doing some odd thing off in left field and think we're fulfilling his prophecy. We need to do some purchasing from God. And it's going to be inconvenient. It's going to cost you something. And you're going to be wore out or broke trying to get it. Are you willing to buy from God? Are you willing to pray? Are you willing to fast? Are you willing to press in? Are you willing to inconvenience yourself for those things that you want so much for you 
for your family, and for your church, and for the kingdom. Buy it from God. Can you pay the price?